0: Greetings and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. All right, well, Shabbat Shalom. Are you ready in the back? Okay, thank you. I can't, the light's blinding me, I can't see. <laughs> well, as you know, we've been in a series on the book of Mark. Today is part 25. We're going to look today at the famous account of when Yeshua was asked whether it was lawful or not to pay taxes to Rome. So turn with me to Mark 12, uh, beginning in verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Yeshua to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Yeshua knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought a coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Yeshua said to them, render or give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Hallelujah. Well, this is part of actually a series of four different questions that were asked to Yeshua during Pesach week, uh, the week before his crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, just as the uh, Passover lambs are inspected for four days to, to assure that they're without spot or blemish, uh, and thus are fitting sacrifices, so too, in the same way, Yeshua was inspected during the same four days, the same time frame, by, by four different groups the Herodians, the Sadducees, uh, the scribes, uh, and the Pharisees. And they found no fault in him. So here here we have the first of the four tests. The Herodians and the Pharisees, who actually were were bitter enemies, team up to try to trap Yeshua. The Herodians were supporters of of the Roman imperial power. Uh, They represented the deep state politically. (laughs) The Pharisees were against Rome, and they represented the Jewish religious establishment, They were the deep state religiously. (laughs) But politics makes strange bedfellows. And what unites them here is their opposition to Yeshua, who in many ways is anti-establishment. And we see three things here in the text we'll put on the overhead. Uh, Number one, a revolutionary question. Two, a revolutionary answer. And three, in that answer, Yeshua points to a revolutionary revolution. He points to a completely new paradigm So number one, this is actually a revolutionary question. The tax in question here is a particular Roman imperial tax that was levied on subject peoples, not on Roman citizens. Uh, So it was very offensive uh, to the Jewish people and reminded them that they were a conquered people, that they were subject to Rome and that's really stuck in their craw. The tax was an annual head tax uh, of one denarius. Uh, when it was first and when it was first instituted in Israel, around 25 years before this time, uh, it caused an insurrection, an armed revolt. It was led by a man named Judas the Galilean, and he did three key things 25 years before this to launch this revolt on the overhead. And number one, uh, he he uh, called on all Jews to refuse to pay the tax. Number two, he went in with an armed band and cleansed the temple and he threw out all the foreigners all the gentiles uh, number three he declared that god alone is our king not caesar we're going we're to bring in the kingdom of god we, we're going to get rid of all oppression and injustice now this revolt did get did not get very far uh, he was attacked caught executed and now it's 25 years later and look at the uncanny parallels yeshua has built his whole teaching his entire teaching on the coming kingdom of god bringing in and preparing for for God's kingdom. Second, he he has just cleansed the temples when here the Herodians and the Pharisees approach him. But unlike Judas the Galilean, he did not do it to cleanse the temple to kick out the Gentiles, but rather to make room for them, uh, for them to approach God and to worship and to pray. So in a sense, Yeshua had done two of the three things that Judas the Galilean had done. So now they're asking him about the third step should we pay this tax or not? Because if Yeshua says, no, don't pay the tax, then then we complete the process to start another armed revolt against Rome. So in essence, they're asking him, are you a revolutionary? Uh, You've cleansed the temple, uh, you've called for the kingdom of God. Uh, What do you think now of the third item, the Roman head tax? Are you a revolutionary? And here's the trap. If Yeshua says, no, don't pay the tax, he's in essence calling for an armed revolt and he'll be crushed by the authorities. But if he says, yes, pay the tax, then everyone who heard him talk about the kingdom of God will think that he's a fraud because first century Jews thought of the kingdom of God very differently than we 21st century modern Westerners do. When people today think of the kingdom of God, what do they think of? Most people today completely spiritualize this concept. Uh, We said the kingdom of God means God lives within my heart. uh, And he brings me inner peace. Now we have to realize that the enlightenment, uh, John Locke, Immanuel Kant, uh, they were the first ones to say religion and spirituality is something for the private life. It's something for your private world. It's just spiritual. Keep it separate. It has nothing to do with the public world. But most people, most cultures, most societies, most centuries did not think like that at all. Most people in most societies and cultures throughout most of time believed that religion had to do with all of your life. And so when Yeshua invokes the Machut HaShemayim, the kingdom of God, when he quotes the Hebrew prophets about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God was not a spiritual inner peace. Rather, the Bible says the kingdom of God will deal with real things, real poverty, real injustice, real suffering, real hunger. It's going to deal with those tangible things. And Yeshua invokes that whenever he talks about the kingdom of God. Uh, For example, in his very first sermon, uh, Luke 4, he quotes one of the great kingdom of God passages from Isaiah. He says this in in Luke 4, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to, to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Notice how material and practical and real life the fulfillment of the kingdom of God is from a biblical, Hebraic, Jewish standpoint. He's dealing with real life issues of of poverty, oppression, injustice, disease, uh, freeing from bondage. So if Yeshua had said, just go ahead and pay the Roman occupation tax, uh, ignore your subjugation, just have inner peace in your life, all his followers would have immediately deserted him because from their worldview, he would have been betraying and negating the whole biblical concept of the kingdom of God. So if he says, uh, yes, pay the tax, he loses the people. But if he says, no, don't pay the tax, who be crushed by the authorities. So it's a revolutionary question that the Herodians and the Pharisees purposely confront him with to try to trap him. Behind the question, essentially they're asking him, are you a revolutionary bringing in God's kingdom? Uh, so now what's his answer on the overhead? And the second point, we've seen number one, a revolutionary question. Now what, now number two, we're gonna see his revolutionary answer And his answer is remarkable, and it's totally outside the box. And everyone was amazed. His opponents are trying to trap him into this no-win, catch-22, yes-or-no, simplistic response, and he refuses to play their game. Yeshua refuses three things on the overhead. He refuses political simplicity, political complacency, and political primacy. And he's modeling for us to do the same. First, he refuses political simplicity. Notice how they try to rephrase the question at the end. They ask him the question twice. First, I say in Mark 12, verse 14, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? They're asking Yeshua a yes or no question. They want a yes or no answer. And Yeshua refuses to take the bait. he never directly actually ever says in this passage, yes or no, uh, in this simplistic kind of manner. He doesn't do what they're asking him to do, which is to give a nice, simple yes or no answer. Yeshua often is simple, by the way, and often is very straightforward and very clear when discussing our relationship to him. Uh, I remember seeing a diner with this electric sign uh, years ago, above it, the electric sign above the diner said, eat here now. (laughs) Very blunt, there was no doubt what they wanted you to do, eat here now. Much of Yeshua's teaching is likewise. uh, Very upfront, very direct. He says, obey me now. Unconditional command. He's very simple. He's very clear in discussing what our relationship to him should be. But when he's asked a question about our relationship to the state, when he's asked a question about our relationship to politics, he does not give a simple yes or no answer. Uh, As we'll see, he instead gives an answer that that completely is off the map. As we'll see, he both resists what's on the coin and he accepts what's on the coin. They want a simple yes or no. You know, which political or religious party are you in, Yeshua? Uh, Are you a Herodian? Are you a Pharisee? He won't do it. Uh, He resists political simplicity. Now, what are some practical implications for us? We must not do what Yeshua himself would not do. Now yes, we can and we should tie ourselves to biblical issues and biblical political platforms, uh, but men are fallible, and we should be very careful in tying ourselves to any individual political personalities. So just a, a word of caution. So, so we need to follow Yeshua and avoid simplicity. Yeshua expressly he warns us here not to mix up God and Caesar. Yeshua will not be put in a box on the overhead. So Yeshua resists, number one, political simplicity. And number two, he also resists both political complacency and political promesy. Let's look at what he does. What does he do? He asks for a denarius. Look at Romans twelve sixteen. They brought a coin, and he asked them, whose image is on this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. The image on the coin was that of Tiberius Caesar, uh, the current emperor, on the overhead. And the inscription was this on the coin, Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus, Pontifus Maximus, high priest. So Yeshua holds up this coin about uh, the Roman emperor that says three things on it. It says he's king, he's the son of God, and he's the high priest. (laughs) And what does he say about this coin? What does Yeshua say? Well, first of all, look at Romans... I'm sorry, look at Mark 12, verse 17. He says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Okay, what does that mean? Yeshua says, whose image is on this coin? The word here, by the way, is the word icon. uh, And they say, it's Caesar's. Now, does he say, therefore, okay, pay the tax? No. Does he, alternatively, does he say, how dare this idolatrous image be in my hand? Don't pay the tax. No. What does he say? Look at uh, Mark 12 verse 17. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God's. Now, first of all, by using this word image or icon, uh, he's implying this. Give to Caesar only that which has his image on it. If it has his image on it, it's his. And literally, it really was his money. Uh, It was minted out of his wealth. Uh, it's, It's his money. Give it to him. His image is on it, on the overhead. But give to God what has his image on it. That's you. That's me. We are made in God's image. So Yeshua, in essence, is saying, give yourself wholly to God. So by saying this, Yeshua is implying several very interesting things on the overhead. First of all, do you realize this was the very first theory of limited government in the world? Up until now, everyone, even Israel, uh, had this other view, uh, that the government, the governor, the king, the rulers, they had divine authority and could not be questioned or posed. Every single government had always said, the gods have chosen us. We're the choice of the gods. Uh, and most kings said, I am a god. Every government had always said, we're the choice of the gods, and therefore, we have absolute authority. You cannot question us on the overhead. But Yeshua, and says, don't you dare give any government that kind of unlimited authority. That's tyranny. That's idolatry. Give Caesar the money because it's his money. He's printed it. He's minted it. But do not give him the allegiance that only God deserves. And Yeshua not only is saying, give Caesar the money, but but not your ultimate allegiance, but he's actually even being more ambivalent about Caesar than that. Because Yeshua changes the verb here in the text that's used uh, in the original question. In the original question they said, should we pay Caesar the tax? The, the Greek word used there means uh, to give a gift, uh, it means to present something. But the verb when he responds, the verb Yeshua uses is the verb render. Look at Mark 12, 17, render unto Caesar, The things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. The word literally means here to pay back what he deserves. Do you see how ambiguous that is? What does a tyrant deserve? (laughs) Maybe he deserves his money back, but doesn't he deserve some resistance as well? On the essence, on the overhead, Yeshua is saying, You may give Caesar some of what he wants, which is his money. But you cannot give Caesar ultimately what he wants, which is to completely accept his system and to give him your undivided, ultimate loyalty. He wants you to accept his system of coercion, his system of censorship and control, his system of injustice, his system of exclusion and oppression. He wants to rule by executive order and by fiat, by fiat, by imperial decree and unilateral mandates. He wants ultimate allegiance. He wants no one to sit in judgment of him. But as a believer, you cannot give him that. On the overhead, a New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, he writes this about this passage. He says this, what Yeshua is doing is a masterful example of refusing to say, don't pay the tax, which would be an open revolt. He doesn't do that, but he also doesn't say, just acquiesce in the system and be nice, compliant taxpayers to Rome. He doesn't do yes or no. He neither advocates for revolt nor mindless, gutless compliance and sheep-like submission to tyranny. He refuses to be put in either box. So had Yeshua told them to revolt or, or told them to pay their tax? He'd actually done neither in one sense, But in another sense, he had told them to do both. Yeshua's statement that you cannot give ultimate allegiance to Caesar was revolutionary. On the other hand, he had not forbidden them to to pay their tax to Rome. The point is this, like Judas the Galilean, Yeshua the Galilean is envisioning a revolution, but a very different kind of revolution. Yeshua is advocating neither acceptance of an unjust dictatorial system, nor outright violent political revolt. Yeshua is saying, yes, there will be a revolution. The temple will be cleansed. But it's not the type of revolution that you are envisioning. So everybody was amazed, as he's not saying just acquiesce and be loyal to Rome. But he's also not saying revolt and take up arms and and refuse to pay your tax. He's saying something very different. He's saying, yes, I am a revolutionary, but not the kind you've ever seen before. And this goes against both political complacency and political primacy. You see, there were two groups that Yeshua was opposing when he said render unto Caesar. Two groups that had refused to pay their taxes. The first group was the Essenes. The Essenes dealt with injustice and corruption and intractable social problems by dropping out coming out of society. They they withdrew from society. They were the extreme uh, separatists uh, who retreated into the wilderness, lived by themselves in the desert. They produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Essenes said, we're not paying our taxes because we're not gonna even be part of the system. We're not gonna be part of the political system at all. We're gonna deal with corruption and injustice by having nothing to do with it. And Yeshua says no. He says, you must render to Caesar. Yeshua wants you as believers to be involved with the political system and to be salt and light. Yeshua does not want his followers to opt out of the system. He will not allow that. Because when we believers don't get involved, that simply allows the ungodly to take control. It allows evil people with anti-God, anti-biblical agendas to wield power and to impose their will. Yeshua won't allow that. But the other group that refused to pay their tax is the opposite uh, of the Essenes. Uh, That was the Zealots. Uh, They said, let's revolt, armed overthrow, the secular system. But Yeshua rejects that direction as well because he's saying that he's not only against political complacency, but also against political primacy. Yeshua says the main way, the primary way to deal with injustice is not through politics, because politics will not change men's hearts. So Yeshua says, in essence, not to drop out of the political process or to see the political process as the primary way to affect change and to deal with evil. And yet Yeshua will not give up on this idea of God's kingdom coming. He says, there is an ultimate authority over Caesar, the Lord God Almighty the Holy One of Israel. Yeshua says there is a kingdom of God coming. I am bringing the kingdom of God, he says, but not in the way you think. And that's why everyone is dumbfounded by his answer. Yeshua is saying in the narrow sense, I don't major in politics, but in the broad sense, I'm incredibly political. In the specific sense of a political program, Yeshua says, I don't have one. But in the broader sense of bringing God's kingdom to deal with real poverty, real suffering, real evil, real injustice, real hunger, real brokenness, I have a definite political program when I come to establish my kingdom on this earth reigning from Jerusalem. And no one, not even his followers, not the Herodians, not the Pharisees, no one knew what he was talking about. Yeshua will not back away from the reality of his revolution but he won't do it in the way that anyone has ever done it before. So how do you affect a revolution like that? And we see the answer in the irony here in Mark's text, which points to what kind of revolution this is. What kind of revolution will change the world, but not be fundamentally political? Look at Mark 12, verse 15. She says, says, bring me a denarius, uh, let me look at it. Here's the irony in this request. Look at Mark, verse 16, Mark 12, 16. Whose image is on this coin and whose inscription? And the image was Tiberius Caesar. As we saw, what was the inscription on the coin on the overhead again? The inscription was Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus, Pontifus Maximus, high priest. So here's what Mark is showing us on the overhead. There are two claimants on this stage, Tiberius Caesar and Yeshua the Messiah. Both say, I'm the king. Both say, I'm the son of God. And both say, I'm the high priest. But look at how utterly different they are. One guy has all the coins in the world. The coins are literally his. It was Caesar's money. It was his Caesar, I mean, sorry, it was his silver used to mint the coins. That's one of the reasons Yeshua says, okay, go ahead, pay the tax. One king has all the coins in the world. The other king does not even have a coin to his name. Notice Yeshua doesn't reach into his pocket and pull out a coin. He has none. He has to ask for a denarius to be brought to him. He doesn't even have one. And the denarius was not a large amount of money. It represented a day's wage for the lowest peasant. The tax was hated not because it was so onerous, but because it was symbolic of Rome's domination. And yet, Yeshua doesn't even have a denarius to his name. He's a king without a coin versus the king with all the coins. Now, when Yeshua says, I'm the king, not Caesar, I'm bringing the kingdom of God, it wasn't, uh, it won't be Caesar's kingdom. He's not, when he says this, he's not saying, I'll replace Caesar, I'll become a better Caesar, no. He's a king without a coin. He's he's a penniless king. A king who says this in Matthew 8, verse 20. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This kind of king is not just a better king, but he's bringing in an utterly different concept of kingship. And therefore, he's also bringing in an utterly different concept of revolution. His revolution revolts against revolts. It revolutionizes revolutions now why is this king poor why does he have nothing probably the best way to understand the difference between the kingdom of god and the kingdoms of this world is go to luke 6 uh, verse 20 when yeshua says this blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of god blessed are you who are hungry for you'll be satisfied blessed are you who, who weep For you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate and exclude you and insult you and reject you because of the Son of Man. Leap for joy and rejoice, because great is your reward in heaven. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed, for you'll be hungry. Woe to you who laugh, for you'll mourn and weep. Woe when all men speak well of you, for that's how they treated the false prophets." In this famous version of the Beatitudes, Yeshua takes four values and repeats them in both the positive and the negative. And these four values are the dividing line between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. So in the overhead, uh, these four values are number one, power, two, success, three, comfort, four, recognition. Yeshua says, let me tell you the difference. Let me tell you the difference between the kingdoms of this world the kingdom of God. In the kingdoms of this world, these four values absolutely dominate on the overhead. They dominate in, in three ways. First, if you're in the kingdom of this, kingdoms of this world, you've got to have these four things. Uh, you live for these things, for power, for success, for comfort, for recognition, and you're decimated without them. You have to have them, and you're desperate for them. Second, when all your life decisions are made on the basis of getting these things. For example, the average person doesn't move to New York or London or, or LA in order to be a good neighbor. <laughs> no, the average person moves to these world centers of power and control uh, to increase their power and increase their success and comfort and recognition. Well, maybe not their comfort, but all the rest. <laughs> Third. We despise and look down on people who don't have these four things. We see them at the bottom of the social and economic totem pole, people of no account, people we ignore on the overhead. And Yeshua says every revolution inside the kingdom of man, every revolution inside of this world is not really changing anything fundamental. It's not changing your core values. Uh, and therefore, it's not really revolutionizing anything. It's just changing the players of which group happens to be in control and the overhead. Because the people in the kingdoms of this world, the people who have the reigns, uh, are always there to get these four things. Every revolt is about saying, I want the power. I want the recognition. I want the status. Uh, I've been excluded. Uh, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. It's like this old... One of my favorite old rock and roll songs by The Who, called We Won't Get Fooled Again. Here's one of the stanzas, uh, it's on the overhead. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. (laughs) There's nothing in the streets looks any different to me. And the slogans are replaced by the by, And the parting on the left is now the parting on the right. And the beards have all grown longer overnight. We'll be fighting in the streets, with our children at our feet and the morals that they worship will be gone. And the men who spurred us on sit in judgment of all wrong. They decide, and the shotgun sings the song. Then I'll get on my knees and pray that we don't get fooled again." Great song. Years ago, there was this fascinating debate that took place between this famous postmodern, radical leftist French philosopher, Uh, Michel Foucault, uh, and these Maoist, communist activists who are trying to set up a so-called people's court uh, in France. The communist activists said, you know, we need to create a people's court, an alternative court, because the regular French courts, we can't trust them. They'll never give us justice. They're going to just protect uh, the oppressive ruling class. Uh, They'll protect the rich and the powerful and the status quo. So we want to establish a people's court to seek real truth and dispense real justice. And of course, they thought their fellow leftist, Michel Foucault, uh, that he'd be their ally. But he was not. And he completely pulled apart and refuted everything they were about to do. And his big point was that for him, truth was a thing of this world. And therefore, everyone who claims to be fighting for truth is really just doing a power play. So we told the activists, when you set up your own court and claim to be for the people, what you really mean is that you're for those people who agree with you. We're only going to be for the people who agree with us about what French society needs, and we're going to exclude everybody else. And Foucault says that every revolution is basically just like that. You can't really set up a people's court, because it will, it will always become just another avenue to accrue power to yourself, and therefore, and to exclude all those who don't agree with you, and to cancel them out. And that's basically what Yeshua is saying here. Because inside the kingdom of man, inside the kingdoms of this world, these four things reign, power, success, comfort, recognition. Everybody's striving and fighting for it. And every revolution, every revolution that's inside the kingdoms of man, is not a real revolution. It says rearranging the furniture. Like the Who said in their famous song, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. No real change on the overhead. But Yeshua, number three, Yeshua says, let me give you a real revolution. Point three, a revolutionary revolution, built on a whole new paradigm, the Malkut HaShemayim, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, as we saw in Luke six, that's completely different, upside down view of these four values. Yeshua says, I'm a king unlike any other king. I'm a king without a coin, because I've given my money away. I'm a king without power, because I gave it away and I laid my life down. I'm a king without recognition. I was despised and rejected, and the cross, even my own father forsook me. Have you ever seen a king like this? If you're the politician, seeks and depends on power and winning the next election but yeshua says the climax of my kingship and my career will not be when i get elected but when i get executed yeshua says have you ever seen a king like me i don't care about recognition i don't care about success i don't care about comfort i don't care about power in fact i'm giving away all these things and I spend my time with the marginal. I love the poor. I heal the sick. I feed the hungry. And anyone who transfers into my kingdom will become like me. Yeshua says members of my kingdom and only those who've been transferred out of the kingdom of man and into the kingdom of God will become like me. You therefore won't need these four things. You won't be driven anymore by by, by a a lust for and and a seeking after of power and success and comfort and recognition. And you'll no longer be decimated if you don't get them. And therefore, therefore you'll no longer make your life decisions on the basis of getting them. You'll live where you'll do the most good for the Lord and not just where it'll maximize your career and, and your status. It'll change how you spend your money. It'll change who you choose to hang out with. Everything is done no longer to get these things, but for what it will do to serve the Lord and benefit others. Now you say, who in the world could live like that? (laughs) How can anyone live like that? Here's how. You must understand why Yeshua is a king without a coin. Why is he poor? Why is he rejected? He's a king without a coin for your sake. The gospel is that on the tree, he took your poverty, the poverty you deserve, so that you could have the infinite wealth of God's forgiveness and mercy and grace. On the tree, Yeshua took the rejection that you deserve, where he was despised and rejected. Even his own father turned his face from him so that in him, you could be loved and recognized and accepted and welcomed. And you receive this not when you see Yeshua just as your example or or role model, but when you see him as a king without a coin for you, for your sake, taking on your poverty, taking your rejection, uh, taking that that which you deserve. When you see and embrace that, uh, when you see that, that, uh, that because he did that for you, God can now accept you. Then and only then, only when you're transferred out of the kingdoms of this world, so no longer dominates you, are you finally free to love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love the people of this world sacrificially. Only when the power of the kingdom of man and all its worldly values is broken over you, uh, where they're not the main thing anymore because Yeshua, Yeshua's finished work on the cross, then and only then can you get out into the world and serve others because you're now living for him. In Yeshua, and only in Yeshua, you finally have the power to love the Lord with all your heart and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and no longer focus on yourself, on the overhead. As was famously said by Karl Marx, religion is the opiate of the people, but the true gospel is the smelling salts of the people to wake us up to the truth. I would like to ask these Marxists you know, if this world is all there is, like you say, why should I risk losing my job or, and sticking up for the truth? Why should I risk my status in order to help others? Uh, if this status is all I'll ever have, if this job is all I'll ever have, what in the world would motivate me to live for others? If this world is all there is, if, if this is the only power and status and comfort and recognition that I'll ever have, then I've got to live for these things. I have no choice. Uh, I'm bound to live for these things. But what if I'm transferred out of the kingdoms of this world into the kingdom of God because of what Yeshua did and my repenting and trusting in him? Yeshua was the king without a coin, the king who lost power, the king who gave everything away so that you could be taken in. Only by submitting your life to this king do you truly become a real revolutionary. And And this revolutionizes all revolutions because all other revolutions are about getting power. But this revolution is about giving it away and changing the world that way through the kingdom of God. And this new kind of kingdom actually will do something, among all the others, actually will do something about hunger and sickness and oppression and and, and injustice and bondage. Tom Skinner, a black pastor, put it very, very well when he gave a sermon years ago comparing Yeshua to Barabbas. Barabbas, as you know, was a zealot, uh, a revolutionary. But the powers that be released Barabbas because they, they understood that he actually was less of a threat to them than Yeshua. So here's what Tom Skinner said in his sermon, I'm gonna put on the overhead. He says this, Barabbas was a guy burning the system down. He's killing people, but if you let Barabbas go, you can always stop him again. The most he'll do is go out, round up another bunch of guerrillas, start another riot. You can always stop him by bringing out the National Guard, putting down the riot find out where he's storing his guns, raid his apartment without a search warrant, shoot him in his sleep, you can always stop Barabbas. But how do you stop Yeshua? They nailed him to a cross, they buried him, they rolled a stone over his grave, and they wiped their hands and said, there's one radical who'll never disturb us again. Three days later, Yeshua pulled off one of the greatest coups of all time. He got up out of the grave. The leader of a new creation who has overthrown the existing order and who has established a new order that's not built on man. To put Barabbas to death ends his revolution. To put Yeshua to death only launches it. To take away power from Barabbas ends his revolution. To take away power from Yeshua Only begins it. All systems of men are doomed to destruction. Only God's kingdom will prevail. And you'll never become truly revolutionary until you become part of that order, Yeshua's kingdom. And then you can go out into this world that's enslaved by the devil and tell them the real liberator has come. Mm, Great sermon. How do you stop a revolution like Yeshua's revolution? You can't. It's the revolution that revolutionizes all revolutions. Because if you kill him, he just gets more revolutionary. If you kill him, he just gets more powerful. His death launches his revolution. And this in turn affects the most revolutionary, political and social and economic change ever. Because it's the only revolution that changes you from the inside out. Institutions and governments cannot truly be changed until we the people are first changed and transformed. And only Yeshua and his kingdom coming into your life can do that. So put off reliance on and allegiance to the kingdom of man and put on submission and loyalty to Yeshua and his kingdom. Join his revolution. For he truly is king of kings and lord of lords. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. The music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you today. Lord, we pray for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done. And we know your kingdom, it's not just something that's spiritual and about inner peace, but your kingdom is real and tangible, addresses real life, material issues like hunger and sickness and poverty and oppression and injustice. Yeshua, you'll come and you'll right every wrong and you'll wipe away every tear Everything sad will become untrue. And while we're to give limited allegiance, yes, to secular governments, to Caesar, to pay our tax, our ultimate allegiance, Lord, is to you. We're made in your image, and therefore we belong to you. We're to render to you what is yours, namely our whole being, because we're made in your image, mind, body, and soul, and to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And therefore, if obeying you, conflicts with obeying Caesar, we must obey you, Lord. Even as the apostles told the Sanhedrin when commanded them not to preach in your name. So help us, Lord, to see our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. Help us to have the courage to live this accordingly. Yeshua, we know you want us to be salt and light, to be involved in our society, but we also know that only you ultimately can affect real change because only you can change hearts. So Lord, start with us today. Circumcise our hearts to love and to fear your name. We pray this all in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.